We are in the midst of our faith focus topic at URC, uh, which in 2021 is united in our witness. Uh, one of the, the beautiful things about a lifelong relationship with the Word of God is that as you read it through on successive occasions and dwell on the words and meditate on the meanings, uh, different parts will stick out to you in ways that have, you've never imagined before. I know that you all know what I mean. You can read the same passage 20 times and not get very much from it, and then something happens in life or in the culture, and all of a sudden a passage takes on new depth and richness. As a, as a leader in the church in 2020, I confess that I've felt this way about Philippians 4.2, which says, I entreat Iodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Um, I'm glad at least one person left. This faith focus, I think, is all about unpacking what Paul meant here when he said, in the Lord. We should agree. Why should we agree? Why should we make that a priority? What we as blood-bought believers in Christ have in common is far more important than the matters over which we may disagree. This is especially important to meditate on right now, 17 days in, and 2021 has not shown itself to be much of an improvement over 2020. Last nine months or so have been one grief after another in our country, and one of the biggest sources of grief, at least for me, is the way in which cultural pressures and issues have encroached upon relationships in the church. It seems to me that in the week between a riot at the U.S. Capitol by supporters of the outgoing president and the inauguration of an incoming president, what we need most to dwell on is what it means that we, in this room, in the church, are united in the Lord. We have a common plight, that is, sin. We have a common salvation in Christ. We have a common hope of eternal life. We are united by faith to one Savior, and He has sent us on a common mission. In fact, we could go as far as to call it a great co-mission. My task this evening is to talk about the part of the mission uh, called apologetics. It is the defense of the faith, um, having, giving a reason for the hope that is within us. There's really a lot that could be said on this topic. Uh, lots of rabbit trails to follow. I confess I had to do some severe editing. Um, there are different schools of thought and different philosophical implications. I'm going to save those uh, uh, for 201 or 301. Maybe Kevin or Jason will, will do that one. Um, I want to approach this topic from the ground. Um, what does it mean in the most everyday sense when we talk about apologetics? And what, in what way does the Scripture command us to take on this task. I, I think that I might 
get to the end of this sermon, we'll see, without a single ism. When I was not yet a believer in Christ, I remember sitting with Tom Stark, uh, the founding pastor of this church, at Arby's on Grand River, no longer there anymore, it's now a high-rise. We were drinking Cokes, and he asked me what I thought about Christianity and about Christians. Now, I had had very little prior interaction with Christians, but like many young people, I was infected with the disease called know-it-all. I, I told him that to my mind, it seemed like Christians were hypocrites who were just interested in money. They preached that people shouldn't act a certain way, and then they did the things themselves. You know, I had seen Footloose. Uh, I had watched MTV. I knew things. Now, put yourself in Tom's shoes. He could have said, yeah, like you know anything about it. I'm not a hypocrite, and the Christians at my church aren't hypocrites. How dare you, dumb kid? All about money? Who bought you that Coke? That would have been true enough. He could have said, isn't everyone a bit of a hypocrite? That would have been true enough. What he did instead was open the book of Mark to chapter 7 and read with me verses 1 through 13. I'll summarize. You don't have to turn there. The Pharisees have a gotcha moment with Jesus because some of his disciples don't follow the traditions of the elders and wash ceremonially before they eat. Uh, Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for leaving the commands of God to follow the traditions of men, pointing out that they themselves use tradition to justify abandoning care for the elderly. That is, while claiming to worship God, they indulged in greed and ignored the command to honor their father and mother. What I want you to see from this story is that I came with a simple objection. As uninformed as I was, and instead of arguing with me, instead of becoming defensive, instead of deflecting, Tom took the opportunity to introduce me to the person of Jesus. I remember in my youthful arrogance coming away from Arby's thinking, well, maybe Christians are all hypocrites, but Jesus agrees with me. Now, that, that may not, that's not certainly where I needed to get, but it was a far step from complete rejection of the religion. I began to think about Jesus and what he was like. I began to know him and not just my stereotypes about his followers. Apologetics is giving an answer when an unbeliever calls your faith into question. It is an everyday part of our evangelism and disciple-making. We, we have a tendency to reduce it to specific strategies uh, or understanding about epistemology, and those things certainly have their place. But biblically, apologetics has more to do with love of neighbor than with love of knowledge. 
Jesus' two greatest commandments are a helpful and simple grid with which we can look at this task. The two greatest commandments are love the Lord your God with all your mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. Apologetics is loving God with your mind and directly applying that love to your neighbor. It's applied theology in the pursuit of love for neighbor. Apologetics is not separate from disciple-making. It is the everyday and practical tool of the disciple-maker. The end of apologetics, that is the goal of apologetics, is not debate, it is not scholarship, or getting people to think exactly like we think. The end of apologetics is Christ and his word. You and I may disagree about public policy and make our case for it, and I might be wrong, and you might try to convince me. That conversation is not apologetics, even if we both appeal to the Bible. Apologetics is dealing together with the ideas or beliefs that are in the way of someone putting their trust in Jesus. Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to the basic text uh, regarding this topic, that is, in the first letter of Peter, chapter 3, uh, we're going to read uh, verses 13 through 17, but I'm really going to focus just on 15 and 16. But let's pray before we come to God's Word. Father, we have gathered here together to focus our hearts and our minds upon you. We confess our neediness to you. We need your word to renew our minds. We need hearts that value you above all other interests. We need the comfort of the gospel. Quiet our hearts before you and allow us, we pray, to hear your voice in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 3, starting in verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. This is the word of the Lord. The Greek word here, uh, translated in verse 15 as defense, is apologia, uh, from which we get our English word apologetics. These, these are the words concerning, you see the word logos in there, the words concerning, are the words giving an account. When the word, we use the word apologize in English, uh, now we exclusively mean um, to express remorse, but that wasn't the original definition of the word. Uh, Originally, the word meant to provide your reason. When we asked someone to apologize, what we were asking them was, what motivated you to do that? 
over time, the use of words shift. You, you can think of Socrates before, uh, in, in his, his trial, you can think of Paul before Agrippa and Festus. Uh, he was, they were giving an apology in the old sense of the word. The letter of First Peter uh, is written by Peter to Christians who are on the brink of the extremist kind of persecution. In the mid-60s, uh, when this was written, the Emperor Nero blamed Christians for the burning of Rome and began a persecution the likes of which the church had not yet seen. Both Peter and Paul are killed in this crackdown. So scholars estimate that both letters written by Peter would have have to have been written very near the time of his death, maybe within a year. So this book, this whole book, is like a letter from a general to his troops on the eve of an overwhelming siege. The Christians will soon be arrested and offered the choice between cursing Jesus and worshiping the emperor or being fed to the lions for entertainment. Peter's letter is written to tell them to hold the line. When opposition, oppression, suffering, and injustice come upon the Christian, the first battle is always an internal battle. The natural responses are fear and anger, either to abandon the faith in terror or to attack in hatred. Peter reminds these believers and us that this is not who we are. We belong to someone who calls us to something better because he is so much better. He who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. And so our response to evil or unbelief is guided by him and not by the world, not by our impulses. We follow a savior who was unjustly attacked and ultimately put to death. As he suffered these evils, his eye was fixed on his love for his father and his love for his people. We who follow him into opposition in his name must follow his pattern. Our minds must be set on our love for God and our love for our neighbor. I have three points that I want to address here tonight. They're right here in the text in verses 15 and 16. First, in your heart, regard Christ as holy. Second, only speak with a good conscience before the Lord. And third, be prepared with an answer. Note that uh, those are out of order from the text. This is because I've ordered my explanation of the text as it reflects the two greatest commandments that we talked about a minute ago. That's the grid. We start with these first two points, in your hearts regard Christ is holy and only speak with a good conscience before the Lord, because they res reflect the vertical relationship, that is, the relationship between us and God, which is the priority. And the horizontal relationship, be prepared with an answer, the third point follows from the vertical. So in verses 15 and 16, we have two imperatives about how we are to love the Lord and one about how we're to love our neighbor. 
You see, when we are asked to give an account of our hope, before anything comes out of our mouths, we must give Christ his due regard in our own inner selves and check our consciences before a holy and loving God. These two vertical commands are actually more difficult and costly than the horizontal command. If we fail these two pre-verbal tests, we will either be the kind of person who spouts off unkindly about everything or the kind of person who is too timid to ever say anything. I know that when you come to a sermon with the title Apologetics 101, your natural expectation is to hear a sermon on the third point. So I apologize, you're getting all three. But the heart and motive of the apologist is actually far more important than the crafted words he or she ends up saying. The first point, in your hearts, regard Christ as holy. So recall the situation here. Peter is saying, if you are persecuted for doing good, that is, if you are put on trial for belief in Christ, don't back down. You say, well, isn't this different? <laughs> These people were being put to death. In my life, we're talking about a, a kid brother who is hostile to the faith or a questioning friend. But, but I hope that what you can see is how closely these situations parallel one another. The threat level is obviously very different, but the inner script is almost exactly the same. And so the admonition from God is the same. That hostile younger brother of yours comes and asks, if God is so good, why are there hurricanes? What goes on in your heart at that moment? A couple of possibilities. One, you get angry at his bad attitude. He's always been like this. Why can't he just let people be happy? Two, you get anxious that you'll seem foolish if you don't know a convincing answer. Thus, your response could be dictated by your anger or dictated by your fear. The Bible is saying to us in this situation, don't forget who you serve. It's not your pride. It's not your brother's opinion. So put the right person on the throne of your heart in that moment. Look, the reason that this moment is a temptation crossroads is that when you speak the words of the gospel, the power of God for salvation is put on display. When your words come out, if you speak the truth from the Word of God, the air imperceptibly crackles with conversion power. Satan desperately wants you to shut up. The best way for him to get you to shut up is to either take aim at your pride or take aim at your fear. Do you see, Christ has a purpose for every conversation. In his sovereignty, he's not limited by your actions or your words. But in his love, he means to work through them. 
he's able to take whatever it is that you say and use it for his purposes. Do you want to see the Lord do something in that skeptic that you love? Then let them see the hope that you have in Christ by engaging their questions with the Word of God. Don't be goaded into sin, and don't be intimidated into silence. Remind yourself who sits on the throne in this conversation. Humble yourself before him and quickly ask him for words, the words to say. Reminding yourself of Jesus' place on the throne of your heart in this conversation serves to both humble and embolden you. You are humbled because you know that your sin disqualifies you from heaven as much as anyone. And it's only by God's grace that you are able to talk about and have hope. You're emboldened because since God has promised to work through the gospel proclaimed, all you need to do is believe it and get the truth out of your mouth. And then sit back and watch the sovereign Lord do his work. One thing I love about this part of the command is that Peter uh, him, himself is intimately aware of the internal battle I just described. Old General Peter is battle-worn. One night when he was confronted by those who came to arrest Jesus, first he cut off some dude's ear with a sword, and then later he denied he even knew Jesus. So here's what your battle-worn veteran general says. When you get into that confrontation to protect yourself at that crossroads, in your heart, regard Christ as holy. Second, only speak with a good conscience before the Lord. This one is closely related to the first point. If it is the Lord that calls us to speak then the way that we speak will demonstrate to what extent we regard him as holy. Let me say that again. If it is the Lord that calls us to speak, then the way in which we speak will demonstrate to what extent we regard him as holy. Unfortunately, there are a lot of Christians who fall into patterns of sin here. There are too many Christians who love their own peace more than they love their neighbor. It's a kind of cowardice in the face of conflict that reflects a heart idolatry. Sadly, there are others who love dominating and pushing others down with words more than they love their neighbor. It's a kind of lust, a lust for conflict or battle or blood the cowardice is probably easier to see. Do we, do we really have to talk about those controversial issues? Haven't sin and punishment and hell been talked about too often in our world? Maybe we just shouldn't talk about hell. You know, between you and me, I agree with you about the whole biblical sexuality stuff, but I think we should just keep a lid on it for the sake of peace. Imagine that uh, you and I are walking down the middle of, of the road. And you're talking to me, and I'm listening. And as we're going, I look over, and 
you're still walking alongside of me, but just moving ever so slowly to the left. Still talking, I'm still listening, and I'm looking at you and I'm puzzling over it. We keep walking, and you keep getting farther, and as I'm looking at you, I step into a big old pothole filled with water. And you say to me, well, I, I did see that coming, but I was trying to lovingly guide you away from danger with my friendship. Just say something. Just talk to me. Just open your mouth and say, look out. It's not loving to not speak up when someone is in eternal danger. This is a failure to have a clear conscience before the Lord, and ultimately it's a failure to remember that Christ is Lord. The sin of battle lust is alive on social media, where no one has to see your face when you are unkind. This is a desire to dominate someone with your words. There are people out there who have made an, an industry or career out of eloquently but lovelessly owning unbelievers or even other Christians on their blogs and social media. These people sit in the seat of mockers. And we go, yeah, but isn't it okay to mock those people? You know, the obviously wrong and hurt and angry people, the lost ones. You know, the dumb ones who say mean things about us. Brothers and sisters, if this is the battle that you are fighting, you're not fighting it on behalf of Jesus. The sword of the Spirit says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. But thankfully, the next verse says, but we know, by this we know love, that he, Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Apologetics is definitely 100% about refuting false teaching. And I am not saying that rhetoric does not sometimes get heated. It does. My own rhetoric right now is a little heated. What I am saying is that persuasive arguments and strong personality are weapons to be used in the battle against powers and principalities. And there are men out there with tens of thousands of Twitter followers who use their powers to put themselves on the throne while claiming to be fighting for Jesus. Don't be fooled. We need to check our hearts as we engage the lost or the doubting. Check our consciences. There is a very real and important test at the heart of our apologetics. Who is on the throne? I say this to you as someone who graduated with a philosophy degree. Um, there is no more wretched hive of lust to dominate with words and villainy than a philosophy department of uh, university. I've been in those classes uh, and won battles and felt that satisfaction and lost the trust and the opportunity to introduce the person of Christ. Again, please hear me, I'm not saying that there is not a vitally important place for strongly refuting folly and error. Here's what I'm saying. I'm saying that if you can't 
strongly refute folly without plainly and demonstrably loving the fool, then you should keep your mouth closed and your fingers off the keyboard. Third, be prepared with an answer. The command here is not only to speak up, don't be silent, but it is to be prepared. That is, to think about this ahead of time. But I want you to notice the limited scope of this verse, of this command. You are not commanded to know an answer to every question that is possibly going to be posed to you. You are commanded to know how to answer the question, why do I hope in Jesus Christ? Sometimes we talk about apologetics, we who are into it, like it is the strategy or solution for engaging the skeptical world on all topics. Like the idea is, let's accumulate a collection of knowledge or a style of questioning that will beat back the attacks and the skeptics. Being able to answer hard questions is important. And Christian scholarship is great and worthy and good, noble thing. What I want you to see is that that is not what this passage is commanding. This passage commands you to be prepared to tell why you have hope. Why do you have hope? Is it because of the transcendental argument or the teleological argument or because of Pascal's wager? Why do you have hope? You have hope because of the person and work of Jesus. You have hope because you are sure that what Jesus accomplished applied, applies to you. Here's what you know. You know that God loves you in Jesus Christ. And you know that this means eternal peace because that's what the Word of God promises. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Your hope over your life as a Christian has grown because living in the light of the grace of Jesus and the truth of God's word, you've experienced the present and regular faithfulness of God. You trust the Bible because it has reliably explained life to you. As C.S. Lewis said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. Your faith is a certainty created in you by the Holy Spirit that the Bible is true, and not only others, but you yourself have been forgiven and saved. The Spirit has put the knowledge of truth in you. Let me pause for a slight digression, please forgive me, uh, and clear the air a bit about how knowledge works. Many, most, unbelievers would argue that in order to reasonably believe that God exists, one must prove that he does with a scientific evidential argument that is based in the physical world. But this principle is plainly untrue. 
It confuses uh, things on the most basic level, categories on the most basic level. A human brain holds certain non-evidence-based truths in order to maintain basic functionality. You believe that your memory is true. You believe that your senses are reliable. You believe that other minds exist outside of you. You believe in logic. You believe that two plus two is four. The most important work, that is the most basic work, the work that keeps you out of the insane asylum, happens at the level of faith and not at the level of evidence or even argument. And this is uh, where belief in God rests as well. This is in no way to denigrate the certainty of these truths. In fact, it proves that faith is a more fundamental kind of knowledge. Certainly people can possess a wrong faith or an unwarranted faith, but that's something that needs to be demonstrated from the outside in. If I say I have faith that the great pumpkin rises uh, every Halloween, you can easily demonstrate that this faith is unwarranted. No one has ever else believed that except for Linus. Nothing in the human life changes or depends upon this truth. It's a belief that something will happen in physical space which never actually materializes. Those are not objections that you can raise against the God of the Bible. The default setting for the human mind is religious. By far, the outliers are those who believe and claim that there is nothing outside of material existence. The single belief God exists has had incalculable impact on human history in terms of ethics, science, sciences, arts, culture, politics, etc. The life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ demonstrates God's intervention into space and time. I could go on. Suffice it to say, the burden of proof is on the unbeliever, not on the believer. We can talk about worldviews and philosophy and logical arguments until we're blue in the face. In fact, I'm saying, do talk. Talk with your unbelieving friends. <laughs> Listen to their objections. But what is most needful is that the objector see in you an abiding trust in Christ and the joy and peace that you gain from Christ. And they see it as you present and share with them the word of God. Again, let's talk about all the things, evolution, science, problem of evil, etc. Let's, let's deal with them. But, the, but it's more important that they see you hold up God's word and your trust in Christ for, uh, so that they can uh, see it. What they're going to do then, they can't help it. Looking at you, answering their question, thinking through their uh, challenge, whatever it may be, with them, looking at the Bible, what they're going to do is hold up their hearts to yours and compare. They can't help it. 
even if you feel like you didn't give a persuasive answer. It's like two lanterns being held up next to each other, and one is on fire and the other one isn't. And I'm telling you, brothers and sisters, this is exactly the moment when the Lord blows the fire into the other one and lights the candle of faith in the unbelieving heart. You're talking about the Word of God. You're explaining your real hope. You're thinking about something hard together in the context of those two things. This is exactly when the Holy Spirit blows the fire of faith into an unbelieving heart. This is what happened with me and Tom. At some point, I compared my preconceptions about Christians with what the Bible said about Christ. And what I knew to be true of this man that I was meeting with. He wasn't a perfect man, but I had to recognize that he's not going to gain anything from converting me. I was nobody. I was nothing but a pastoral and diaconal care headache to be gained. And so I asked myself, why does he keep taking me out for Cokes and sharing the Bible and trying to answer my dumb questions? And praying for me. This is a smart guy. He's kind. What's he getting out of me? That's when it dawned on me, he believes this. <laughs> he believes that the threat of destruction is real. What's more, he has hope because of who Jesus is and what Jesus did. And that was the moment that I started thinking differently about the whole conversation. That was when I started saying, you know, what the Bible is saying about sin being at the center of all the problems and suffering in the world, that really has been true of my experience. And if God loves us, a God of love would give himself to rescue us. I get it. If God loves us, he would want to fix that. I don't know whatever Christians are like, but me and Jesus is what I want. Now, that's how I say it. That's how you understand it when you're first coming to faith. Hey, I want this Jesus. The reality is the Holy Spirit was working through his word, changing my mind, changing my heart, opening my eyes, granting to me a new heart. We all have people in our lives who look at our faith and not only disagree, but want to push and say, really? Why do you believe that? Let, tell me. You know, they, they want to go after what we are believing. Why? Some questions or objections are more well-reasoned than others. Some are offered from a place of hostility and anger some from a false sense of superiority. We all know hostile people. You can find them on the internet. When they aim their skepticism at you, do you hear what they're saying with the ears of Jesus, like Paul did, like Tom Stark did? I want you to see that dealing with people's questions, attempting to engage in a discussion on the invalidity or validity of ideas, 
that people have related to God, the Bible, and Christianity is all a part of the mission to make disciples of the nations. Apologetics is not the job of the professors. We don't need our pastors to come over and do it for us. We need to love our neighbors enough to be willing to talk to them about their doubts and their objections. Most objections and skepticism boil down to this. I don't know or trust this Jesus that you devote your life to, and I'm scared by the prospect of him being in control. Christian, who better to address that question than you? You may feel wobbly or in, inarticulate in your words, but it is not a mystery to you, if you believe in Christ, why you have this hope. Trust God with your awkwardness and speak. I want to underscore that God has ordained to work by his word at work in you. That is, by the Spirit, the word is where all the power, all the potential energy is. The word is the match, but God strikes the match against your life to light the fire in someone else's heart. And you can't do that unless you are in conversation with unbelievers, hearing their uh, biggest problems, their biggest objections, listening and offering your thoughts. You don't have to have the best answer to every question. I don't know if you were coming tonight to hear, here's the best answer to every question. I'm telling you, you don't have to have it. The Holy Spirit is at work through you. You need to give the reason for the hope that is within you. And you need to do it kindly, and you need to do it with God, uh, the Lord Christ Jesus on the throne. When we are talking with someone who has an objection to the faith, we have to remember that the most important conversation is the ori most important part, the most important goal of this conversation is the orientation of their hearts toward Christ. Apologetics is not about winning debates. It's about winning souls. It's about clearing away the debris so that they can stop and listen and hear Jesus' still small voice. If we forget this, if we forget the, the love of neighbor, our great reasoning and our most persuasive arguments will just be noisy gongs and clanging cymbals. We need to be ready to listen answer, uh, and engage uh, unbelievers at the level that they are. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have called us to be a part of your plan for redeeming your people. We thank you that you have chosen to use the means of the imperfect words of imperfect vessels. This will allow us to see the work of your hands, your splendor and majesty all the clearer when you bring your people to yourself. Lord, we each have someone. Uh, this is another way in which we are all united. We each here in this room have someone in mind who we love so dearly and are lost. We lift them up to you now. 
And we ask that you would grant the miracle of regeneration and you would be pleased to use our imperfect words, patient answers to hard questions, and love over time to awaken these loved ones to salvation by faith in Christ Jesus. Not that we would be made anything of, but that you would be brought glory in their repentance, and that they would be brought to hope and joy and salvation in you. We ask this knowing that it is you who can do it, and we ask that you would use us. In Jesus' name, amen.